0: Alright, let's open the Bible today to Revelation chapter 7. I've actually had hopes of fulfilling a promise I made when we started this study that I could preach a whole chapter in a single Sunday. Things got started a little slow. I'm going to try, but we may not. I'll still have a few other chances. But turn to Revelation chapter 7. Last week we just finished our discussion about the sixth seal which I talked about as describing nuclear holocaust that will come to this earth. I believe the sixth seal is a transition in the context of the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week. I believe it's a point at which the judgments by natural phenomena transition into supernatural judgments or what the Scriptures call the wrath of the Lamb. And so we have this transition, and in that context, we have the breaking of the treaty with Israel that Antichrist initiates according to the prophet Daniel. So we're in a transition, and now we've come to chapter 7. At the end of chapter 6, the rich men, the powerful men, the political men of this world are fleeing into the rocks and caves of the mountains, into their underground bunkers, many of which are in existence even today, and they're crying for the rocks to fall on them because they know the wrath of God has come. It's not a cry of repentance. These judgments don't serve to soften the world, they serve to harden it, just like the plagues hardened the heart of Pharaoh in Egypt. But now we come to chapter 7, and the tone changes just a bit. till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And so obvious, obviously we have a change of tone here. We move from judgment to a pause in which time is taken before the trees or the earth or sea is hurt to seal the servants of God in their foreheads. I believe Revelation chapter 7 is what we would call a parenthesis or it's a backdrop with regard to the chronology of this tribulation period. In fact, I believe we see several of these parentheses throughout the book of Revelation, at least five of them. When I was attending high school, I was always in the honors classes. I was always in the AP classes. Um, I didn't have to study much to get an A, that's just the way I was wired. And we had to read all of this literature in our AP English classes. And I never was a big, fan of Amer- a big fan of American classic literature. Some of that stuff you learn to appreciate as you get older. But there was one classic writer that I did like. His name was William Faulkner. He was an American author. And the reason I liked reading his books is because what you would have is a plot, an overall plot that would progress throughout the book. But then from time to time it would jump to different subplots that were taking place behind or in the backdrop of the main plot. So you had all of this stuff going on simultaneously, going from one subplot to another as the plot continued to progress. And I just found that interesting. I like books where there's a lot going on and it keeps your interest. And so that's really what we have here with the book of Revelation. We have the progress of the tribulation period, we have it prefaced with the church age, the vision of Christ that John saw on Patmos, and then it progresses until its fulfillment in the coming of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth. But while these things are going on, while these judgments are being poured out, the purpose of the tribulation is to wake up the nation of Israel, the time of Jacob's trouble, and to bring wrath and judgment to the earth by its creator. And though these are the main purposes or the main plot, and though these things are laid out as we see the the seal, the trumpet, and the vile judgments, there are other subplots taking place in the backdrop that work together with these things. And so I believe what we have here in chapter 7 is one of these behind-the-scenes looks at events spanning the time of the sealed judgments. In fact, there are at least five of these parentheses that you can find in the book of Revelation. And we're going to see these as we progress through the book. In chapter 6, we've seen the first six sealed judgments. I said, I believe these take place in the first half of Daniel's week, before da- uh, Antichrist's true identity is revealed. And here we have a parenthesis. This parenthesis is going to show us that God seals 144,000 Jewish witnesses, and the ministry of this, these Jewish witnesses results... In a Gentile revival, a great Gentile multitude saved out of the tribulation period. So we have this going on in the backdrop. Then we'll move in chapters 8 and 9 to the six trumpet judgments. Remember, the seventh seal is the seven trumpet judgments. Then we have another parenthesis in chapter 10 and 11. We see a vision of a mighty angel in a little book. And then there's promised warning that these things would be prophesied throughout the church age, beginning with John. We see a picture of the tribulation temple, which is obviously built um, prior to the midpoint of the tribulation, because Antichrist desecrates it. We see the ministry of God's two witnesses. Things happening in the backdrop. Then we have the announcement of the the seventh trumpet in Revelation chapter 11. Followed by what I believe is a big huge parenthesis. In chapters twelve and thirteen, we have the main characters of the tribulation, seven personages. Okay? And then we have a talk we, we have some uh, statements made in chapter 14 about the reward for these hundred and forty-four thousand witnesses, the doom of the entire world political system. And then we have two gatherings contrasted, two harvest the rapture as a harvest or gathering of God or Christ, and Armageddon as another harvest or gathering of God. One is a gathering unto good things, another is a gathering unto evil things. We have a parenthesis explaining what's going on. Chapters 15 and first part of 16 are the six vile judgments. And then we have another pause describing how the demonic agents of Satan deceive the masses during the tribulation, to gather all people, stop talking girls, to Armageddon for the final battle. And then we have chronologically in chapters 16 through 18, the seventh vial is poured out. And this results in the doom of not only the world commercial or political system, but the world religious system as well. And then finally, chronologically, uh, after this point in chronology, we have another parenthesis which describes the marriage supper of the Lamb taking place in heaven during the tribulation. And then finally, the rest of the book is dedicated to the return of Christ, followed by the millennium, the great white throne judgment of God and the eternal state. So throughout the book, keep in mind there are these behind-the-scenes looks that tell us things that are going on, or explain in more detail things that are going on as the chronology continues. So that is what we have here in Revelation chapter 7. A parenthesis, a behind-the-scenes look or a backdrop. Let's look at the first three verses that I just read. We have a pause. We have quiet. We have what I believe is a calm before the storm. Has anyone ever been in been uh, in a, in a tornado or... Um, weather that produces a tornado. We've never been really close to one. I know there's been some bad ones out toward Vail or even in this area over the years, but they say prior to the coming of a tornado for a short period of time there's quiet and calm. Same thing with a hurricane. We were down at Topsail Island over the week of the fourth when Hurricane Arthur blew by off the coast and it was really nice the day before. And it seemed really nice that morning, but then all of a sudden the wind picked up and the rain started pouring down. Here we have a calm before the storm of God's judgment. John saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth. And to these angels were given power to hurt the earth and the sea. You see, God created the earth and the sea. And we all talk about how horrible it is to litter on the ground or, you know, you know how terrible it is if a whale gets beached, and we want to talk about the creation. And yes, we should be good stewards of God's creation, but when people cry and weep and moan over a dead dog but have no concern whatsoever for a murdered unborn baby, there's something radically wrong. God is going to judge those that destroy His earth, it says that here in Revelation. But the Creator who made heaven and earth has the power to destroy what He has made and He is perfectly righteous in doing it. We are not righteous or warranted in wantonly destroying God's creation. That's wicked. It's just as wicked to totally cut down all the redwood trees and the sequoia trees so man's greed can be fulfilled in high-priced furniture as it is to litter on the sidewalk and just trash up what God has made. It's wicked to, to be cruel for no reason to animals. The Bible says that a wicked man doesn't regard the life of his beast. But it's equally cruel and wicked to murder an unborn child. It's equally cruel and wicked to be a terrible steward of God's money. God calls us to stewardship. So, some things that God is able to do righteously, like take vengeance, it's not our place to do. When we do it, it's sin against God. Vengeance is the Lord. Destroying God's planet is His deal. He's the Maker. Who are we to try to destroy something God has made? And the fact of the matter is, we don't have the power as the human race to destroy the earth. It's impossible. What the earth can throw at the human race is so much more powerful than what we could even conceive. And the earth endures until God decides to destroy it. But here, in these moments, these angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea are told to wait. There's a pause in judgment. Now some people look at this verse, I've often heard this verse quoted on a college campus when we go to preach the gospel as people are trying to mock the Scriptures and say that they are full of contradictions. And one such contradiction that I've often heard is this verse where it speaks about the four corners of the earth. Well, see, the Bible can't be trusted. The, Bible's not, the earth is not flat like the writers of the Bible believed, like the early explorers believed. It doesn't have four corners. It's a sphere. Look, here's an error in the Scriptures. Is that the best people can come up with? Number one, the Bible doesn't teach that the earth is flat. The book of Isaiah says that God hung the earth in outer space. The Bible, that the earth or the, the ball of the earth is called a sphere in the Old Testament. The explorers that sailed the seas in the early days, in the days of Columbus and these others, they didn't believe the earth was flat either. That's a myth. If they thought the earth was flat, how in the world would they have thought that sailing west would eventually bring you to India? Because they knew India was east. When Columbus landed here in the Americas, he thought it was India. He thought it was the East Indies. Why do you think we call Native Americans Indians? It goes back to that. But if the explorers thought the earth was flat, why were they sailing west to get to the east? Just think about it it's foolishness. There may have been those that taught that, but that was not the common attitude ever in history, nor was it in the Bible days. But, when we discuss things like weather, the prevailing winds... Go look, listen to a meteorologist when he gives you the weather report next time. When he describes the weather, how does he describe things? He describes it in terms of, the, of a compass. And how many main directions does a compass have? Four. North, south, east, and west. In terms of the compass, the earth has four corners. We're not talking about its shape as a planet. Look at the the words used here. Standing at the four corners of the earth holding the four winds. The fact that this phrase, four winds, appears right here in context with four corners, says that we're talking about meteorological patterns here. We're talking about the circuits of the winds. And in terms of these things, we have four corners. This is not an error. This is the Bible talking to plain men in plain language. You see, the philosophers and the so-called scientists use all this esoteric language that the average person can't understand. And many times the people that write this garbage can't understand it because they can cloak uh, confusion into their esoteric language so that the common man just accepts what they believe because, hey, they're the scientists. They know what they're talking about. That's not the type of book we have here with the scriptures. The Catholic Church may say you don't deserve a Bible because you can't properly interpret it. Only the Pope and the cardinals and the priests can do so. But the Bible was written for the common man. Therefore, we have plain language that plain people can understand. Plain people know that in terms of the earth's winds and weather, there are four corners. The scientist wants to cast doubt on the veracity of the Scriptures, ignoring archaeological evidence that confirms the Bible every time, ignoring the language of the plain man that constantly confirms and affirms what science later discovered. I found an article uh, last week where some of these ISIS Muslim terrorists in northern Iraq went into the town of Mosul and took sledgehammers and destroyed some of the ancient tombs and relics of the biblical Nineveh, including the tomb of what was believed to be Jonah the prophet. Did you know that for many years up until the mid-19th century, the Enlightenment philosophers poked fun at the Bible? And they said it's not true, it's not an accurate reflection of history. And one of the examples they often used was that the biblical Nineveh Didn't exist. We have no evidence whatsoever that there was ever this great Assyrian capital in the Middle East where Jonah went and preached. In the mid-1800's, the ruins of Nineveh were found in northern Iraq just across the river from Mosul. And the Bible was shown to be right. So in the same vein, men that hurl criticism at the Bible today, history as it continues to progress constantly shows the Word of God to be true. And those tombs that were destroyed last week by those terrorists, and those ruins were proof again that the Bible is a history book. The names and places we see actually existed. Unlike the Book of Mormon, which has this map that matches nothing on the planet today, and all these cities and towns, that they don't even exist. And there's no city or town that even has that name. And so here, we don't have a contradiction. We have the Bible speaking in plain language for plain people, and praised God that He gave His Word easy to be understood to the average man. William Tyndale, when he translated the Bible into English, and lost his life at the hands of the wicked Catholic Church for it, said, "If the Lord will allow, I will, may I be used in such a way that the plowboy will be able to understand the Scriptures just as much as the Pope." So, no contradiction. But we have these four angels. To whom it is given to hurt the earth and the sea. Who are these four angels? Somebody turn, uh, Daniel, will you turn to Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5? We've talked about this before. Zechariah 6, 1 through 5. Yes.
1: And I turned and lifted up mine eyes, and looked, and behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of brass. In the first chariot were red horses, and in the second chariot black horses, and in the third chariot white horses, and in the fourth chariot gristled and bay horses. Then I saw and said unto the angel that talked with me, What are these, my lord?
0: and the angel answered and said unto me, these are the four spirits of heaven of the heavens which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. What we have here in Zechariah 6 are the four spirits of the heavens which go from before the Lord and if you continue reading the chapter you'll see that they go in different directions to accomplish God's purposes with regard to Babylon and the judgment uh, that it inflicted on the nation of Israel. Now. What did we see with the first four seals in Revelation chapter 6? I won't go back and read these. What did we see with the first four seals? What were they accompanied by? Four horses, okay? These four horses were different colors that matched the colors mentioned there in Zechariah chapter 6. So if what Zechariah 6 presents is the four spirits of the heavens that go forth to do God's work. So, the four horses of the apocalypse carrying the agents of judgment were these same four spirits, I believe, that go forth into all the earth. And then we come to Revelation chapter 7, where these angels, these four angels at the four corners, are described as those to whom it is given to hurt the earth and the sea. These four angels here, I believe, are the four horses of chapter 6, are the four horses and chariots of Zechariah chapter 6. And so, if that's the case, then this pause is actually taking place chronologically before the opening of the first seal. Because you have these four horses being told to stand still for a moment. And so chronologically, we're back before the opening of the first seals in this parenthesis. Then it says that another angel ascended from the east having the seal of the living God. And he told these... angels of judgment to wait until he had finished sealing the servants of our God in their foreheads. Now as we go on to read, we'll see that these servants are of the house of Israel. 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. 12,000 of each tribe. This other angel, his job is to seal these servants. So his job is related to the people of Israel. Who is this other angel? We'll see later that he's named in the book of Revelation. Uh, J- D- Jason, will you turn to Daniel chapter twelve, verse one? Ricky, if, if you could read uh, Revelation twelve verse seven. Yes. So here we have Daniel prophesying about the end times when Michael, who is the archangel that stands for the people of Israel, will stand up. This will be followed by a time of trouble such as never has been seen in this earth. And every one of the people of Israel that are found written in the book or other, in other words, that are sealed, will be delivered from this time of trouble. So this other angel who rises to seal God's people of Israel, his remnant are those found written in the book for whatever reason. This is Michael the archangel, I believe. Revelation 12.7 Okay, so in Revelation 12, another parenthesis that shows the main characters and their interactions during the tribulation, the main supernatural characters, we have Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And that is in the context of the dragon persecuting the Messiah, or trying to persecute or kill the Messiah of Israel, and then going after uh, the seed of Israel. And so you have Michael and his angels standing up. On behalf of the children of Israel. So I believe this another angel here in chapter 2, I mean, chapter 7, verse 2, is Michael the archangel. These four angels to whom it is given to hurt the earth and the trees and the sea are the four horses. And so this pause, this calm before the storm, really is a calm before the storm. Chronologically, it's taking place just prior to the opening of the first seal and the coming of the white horse and its rider, which is Antichrist. When is this taking place? I've already said I believe it's before the opening of the first seal. But it's worth pondering because it really could be one of two things. Look what what they're told in verse 3. Don't hurt the earth, don't hurt the sea, don't hurt the trees. So we have one of two things going on here. When we go back and look at the seal judgments, especially number 6 the nuclear holocaust, it's obvious that the earth, the sea, and the trees would be hurt in that judgment. Especially the sixth seal. But when you talk about war, war always affects the earth, the sea, and the trees. In fact, I remember going to the Smithsonian Institute as a young man. Our parents took us up there uh, one weekend to go to the museums and I was fascinated in one of the history museums there was a stump of a tree that had been preserved I believe it was from the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse in the Civil War, 1864. And this tree trunk had been saved and it was riddled from top to bottom with bullet holes. And it was just a statement of the, of the ferocity of that battle. And that tree was so gnarled and warped, it was unbelievable. So war affects these things, famine affects these things, death and tragedy affects these things. Okay, So obviously, the trees, the sea, and the earth were hurt during the six seals. And that would mean that this is taking place prior to the opening of the first seal. Or, it could be said that the first six seals target men and are a result of the fruit of man's foolishness, judgment by natural phenomena. We've talked about that. There's a pause here, a calm before God's storm, And then we see the sixth seal as we described last week is that time when God arises to shake the earth, Isaiah chapter 2. Then we have a pause, the sealing of the 144,000 followed by the first three trumpet judgments that specifically as we'll see in chapter 8 target the trees, the sea, and the earth. The reverse order of what is mentioned here in verse 3. So that could be an interpretation that we're actually seeing a pause here at the midpoint of the tribulation, and then the next three judgments involve attacks specifically against the trees, the sea and the earth. We're here in verse three, they're told, "Don't hurt the earth, the trees, or earth the sea and the trees." So that would make this taking place chronologically at the midpoint of the tribulation, around the time that the treaty between Antichrist and Israel is broken. Some Jews wake up at this point, they're sealed, and the Gentile revival will follow Antichrist's revealing of his true colors. So these would be two possible chronological interpretations. I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but I believe that this transitions back to the beginning of the tribulation. And this is based upon the order of events we see elsewhere in Scripture. Sometimes what cannot properly or, or uh, essentially be discerned in one passage of Scripture can be clarified when we let Scripture interpret Scripture. That's where people go wrong and misapply the Scriptures is when they take it out of context, they ignore its immediate context, and they ignore the entire context of the Word of God, which all came from God. The Bible's not really a book. It's not really one book of God's Word. It's a library of God's Word. Now, turn to Matthew chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. Jesus maps the tribulation period in His Olivet Discourse. We talked about this last week, and how amazingly it matches the order of things here in the book of Revelation. Look at the two verses, 14 and 15. I'm not going to read the previous ones, but this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. So we have an announcement of the gospel of the kingdom going forth into all nations. When we read chapter 7 of Revelation, we see that that is exactly what the purpose of this sealing is. So, that the gospel will go forth. So, chronologically, verse 14, the gospel goes forth, and this continues until the end. And then, verse 15, when you shall therefore see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place. That's at the midpoint of the tribulation. So, in Matthew's, uh, in Jesus' discourse here in Matthew, you have the preaching of the gospel taking place before the midpoint of the tribulation. Turn to Joel chapter 2. Revelation chapter 7 describes these witnesses. Joel, the prophet Joel, goes into more detail concerning their purpose. This is in the Old Testament Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. It's a little study book. In Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 31, the prophet says this It shall come to pass afterward. This is after God regathers his people into the land of Israel. We knew that know that happened and started happening in 1948. It's continuing to happen as Jewish people move to Israel every day. It shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters. That means the sons and the daughters of the people being talked to, which is Israel. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out My Spirit. So God's going to pour out His Spirit on the sons and daughters, the old men and the young men of Israel in that day after they've been gathered together. And then verse 30, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, That's all things that will happen in the first five seals. Blood, fire, pillars, and smoke. Antichrist rise to power, war, pestilence, economic collapse, and tragic death would produce blood, fire, pillars of smoke. Verse 31, the sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. The great and terrible day of the Lord is when Christ comes back at Armageddon here. This is the narrow day of the Lord, the actual day of the Lord. Sometimes the day of the Lord refers to the whole period of judgment. Verse 32 and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Romans 10:13 where where Paul says whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's quoting Joel chapter 2 verse 32. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the Lord hath said and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. So the Lord's going to call a remnant after the church is taken out. It's this 144,000 sealed. God will pour out His Spirit. Then what will happen? These signs of blood, fire, pillars, and smoke. Then the sun is turned into darkness and the moon into blood. This is the sixth seal. Then this great revival is going to take place and many will call upon the Lord as a result of the witness of God's remnant. So in Joel's chronology... We have the pouring out of the Spirit before things that are explained in the first six seals. So when we look at these other passages, I believe chronologically that we're talking about a parenthesis that begins in the undisclosed period of time between the church gathered in heaven praising the Lamb and the actual opening of the first seal. So the church is taken out God seals His remnant to finish the job that started at Pentecost during the period of tribulation. So again, I believe that chronologically we're here telescoping back to the time when the seals are beginning to open. The beginning of the tribulation period. So what we have is God's witnesses sealed they begin to do their work and we have a revival or a last great awakening that starts at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel and then it continues toward the end. Does that make sense? Any questions there? So truly this is the eye before the storm that starts with the opening of the first seal. Now later we're going to see another calm. It's. I mean, this is the calm before the storm. Later, we're going to see an eye of the storm. It's 30 minutes. And after that, all hell breaks loose. So, let's go to chapter 7, verse 4. We've had this calm before the storm, and now verses 4 through 8, we're going to have Israel's sealed remnant described. And it says, I'm just going to read verse 4. I'm not going to go through and read out all the tribes. I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. So God's witnesses described in Joel 2 and Matthew 24 are 144,000 represented from all the tribes of Israel. And then as we go through the next few verses, it starts, the tribe of Judah sealed 12,000, the tribe of Reuben sealed 12,000, and on to the end. So the overall total is 144,000. This is not Jehovah's Witnesses. This is not Mormons. This is not special spiritual Christians. These are people, descendants of the tribes of Israel. These are Jewish people. Witnesses. When the Jehovah's Witness church was started, I believe in the 1800's, they taught and their prophet taught that his church was this sealed remnant. Jehovah's Witness doctrine teaches that they are the witnesses of Revelation 7. Where do you think they get their name from? But it was funny that as years went by, the membership in the Jehovah's Witness cult, and the cult is what it is, started to exceed 144,000. So that couldn't be true. And then they had to change their doctrine and say, well, only certain Jehovah's Witnesses will qualify for this. The rest of them will be stuck here on earth doing menial jobs in the kingdom. And so Jehovah's Witness doctrine has changed over the years because it hasn't been fulfilled as their so-called prophet said it would. How many cults are out there that claim to speak for God? They make prophecies that don't come true. Well, according to the Bible, we can know these are false prophets, not sent by God, because a prophet sent by God, everything he says comes true. And besides, the book of Hebrews says that God, in sundry times, spoke to us by the prophets, but in these last days, he speaks to us through his son. So God's not sending out prophets that go forth and give new revelation outside of the written word of God. Because these days now that Messiah has come, God speaks to us through his son. And the son is superior to the prophets. Yes, the son of God Jesus is superior to anything Muhammad ever said. The son of God is superior to the angels. Read Revelation, I mean Hebrews chapter 1. God speaks to us through his son. And we have prophecy, the canon of Scripture here, clothed in its completeness. And nothing no man says, regardless if he claims to be a prophet, will ever supersede or contradict what is written here. But it's funny how the Jehovah's Witness doctrine had to change over the years, but it wasn't fulfilled. Mormons have often referred to themselves as being these true witnesses. Of course, there's far many more Mormons in this earth than the 144,000. This is not the church or special Christians. There have been certain cults that call themselves Baptists, Baptist Briders. They believe that only certain Baptists are the Bride of Christ. And the only certain special Christians will be raptured. That's a cult. That's not true. It's based on misinterpreting passages like this. The plain language here is 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Why would it mean anything else? Tribes of Israel. Why do we need to reinterpret that to mean something else? We don't. You get in trouble when you start doing that with God's Word. It was given to the common man. All of the tribes of the children of Israel will be represented here in this end times revival. There's no reason to interpret this any other way. And let me also say this. Israel is often spoken of in these days as... Uh, There's often a, a segment of Israel spoken of in these days as the ten lost tribes. If you remember, the northern kingdom of Israel that had its capital at Samaria was taken away captive by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And so these ten northern tribes were scattered. And it is said in the use of this term here that they became lost and they never quite made it back to... To Israel, some people have taught that, that uh, the English and the white Americans are actually the ten lost tribes of Israel. And that all of us white people are actually Jewish. I think that was Herbert Armstrong that taught that nonsense. I can't remember exactly, but people have come up with all kinds of weird doctrines surrounding what they call the ten lost tribes. But based upon what we read here in Revelation chapter 7, there are no lost tribes at least not lost to God. None of His people have ever been lost to God. Turn to 1 Kings 12, verse 17, Matthew. Ronnie, would you look up Luke chapter 3, verse 36? Now remember, the ten lost tribes are all the tribes except for Judah and Benjamin, Okay? Because the southern kingdom of Judah was basically Judah and Benjamin together. And so the assumption is that the rest of them were scattered with the carrying away or the captivity at the hands of Assyria in 722 B.C. But what does 1 Kings 12.17 say? But as for the children of Israel which dwelt in the cities of
1: Judah, ran
0: Okay, so this was before the captivity of the ten northern tribes. You had the division of the kingdom between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And here in this passage, you had it's revealed that representatives from all the tribes came to Judah and submitted themselves to King Rehoboam. So even when the kingdom was divided, you had representatives of these other tribes living in Judah. The whole tribe was never lost. And then it talked about how many people fled from the northern kingdom and came down to the southern kingdom. Why do you think Jeroboam built those golden calves? He didn't want the people from the other tribes worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem. What about Luke 3:36? Which was the son of Canaan, which was the son of Okay, I'm, that must, that's not, I might have given you. Yeah, I might have given you the wrong reference there, Ronnie. I'm sorry. Let me look real quick. I think it's Luke 2:36. Luke 2:36. Yeah, that's, uh, it's Luke 2.36. Can't even read my own chicken scratch. Okay,
1: and, okay. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Samuel of the tribe of Asser. She was of a great age and had lived
0: with a husband seven years from her. So here at the time of Christ, when he was taken to the temple to be dedicated, that's where Simeon, who had been looking for Messiah, said, Lord, I can die in peace now. I've been able to see Your chosen one. We have this mention of Anna, a prophetess, who was of the tribe of Asher. Well, Asher was one of these so-called ten lost tribes that supposedly went missing in 722 B.C. But in the time of Christ, we have a descendant of the tribe of Asher living in Jerusalem working in the temple. There are no ten lost tribes. God's people are not lost to Him. And there may be Jewish people living all over this earth that don't know what tribe they're descended from, but God knows. And when these Jewish witnesses are sealed, there will be equal representation from all the tribes. There are no ten lost tribes. Yes, the genealogies have been, uh, uh, have been compromised. Yes, it's very hard to know. Maybe it's not even possible, humanly speaking, to know which tribe you came from. But God knows. God knows and it will be revealed. So we have the overall total of 144,000, and then in verses 5-8, through we we see that this will be 12,000 from each tribe. And then we have these tribes listed. So what exactly is going on here? Because if you know Old Testament history and you know the tribes of Israel, you'll read this list and you'll see something's not right here. There's... Somebody missing. Or wait a minute, there's supposed to only be 12 tribes of Israel, but there's really actually 13. What's going on? So we need to go back to the Old Testament. Jacob had 12 sons in the book of Genesis. God blessed him with 12 sons. These became the fathers or the patriarchs of the tribe of Israel. Leah, his first wife, whom he was deceived into marrying, had six sons. She had Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah at uh, at first, these four. and then later, she would God would bless her with two more, Issachar, and Zebulun. During this time after Leah gave birth, and Rachel, whom Jacob truly loved, but had to had to work for her as well after he was deceived into Mary and Leah, um, became jealous because she couldn't have any children. So she gave her handmaid, Bilhah, to, 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 to Jacob to raise up seed for her. And Bilhah, Jacob's, I mean, Rachel's handmaid, gave him, gave him two sons, Dan and Naphtali. After this, Leah got jealous and was like, well, you know, I'm going to outdo my sister. So she gave her handmaid, Zilpah to Jacob and by her he had two more sons, Gad and Asher. And then finally God opened Rachel's womb and gave her two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. So those are your 12 sons of Jacob. These are by Leah. These are by Leah's handmaid, I mean uh, Rachel's handmaid, these are by Leah's handmaid. And these are by Rachel. And of course, Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin and was buried along the way as Israel was traveling throughout the land of Canaan. So we have 12 sons of Jacob whereby the 12 tribes are fathered. But let's turn for a moment to see what happens later um, toward the end of Jacob's life. Let's turn to Genesis 48, verse 5. Eric, would you read that for us this morning? Genesis 48, verse 5. This is at the end of Jacob's life when Joseph goes to see him. Joseph has had two sons in Egypt, Ephraim and Manasseh, and they go to see their father Jacob in the last days of his life, and Jacob issues a blessing to Joseph. Genesis 48, verse 6. I'm sorry, verses five and six. I think we need to read both verses. Now your two sons who were born
1: to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine. As Reuben and Simon are. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers and
0: their inheritance. Okay, we have a blessing here where Jacob takes Joseph's two sons and he blesses them and says going forward, your sons are going to be as if they're my sons. So in other words, Joseph would be blessed in a way that his other brothers would not be blessed. He would have two parts in his father's inheritance because Jacob said, I want you to count your sons as if they are mine. So therefore, both Ephraim and Manasseh at that point became in the inheritance as if they were the sons of Jacob. So what we now have are 13 sons of Jacob. Now this often happened in the traditions and customs of the Jewish people. Later as you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that King Josiah elevated his grandson, Jehoiachin, to the status of a son. That's who he wanted to reign in his place. Not his other wicked children. The people didn't accept that. That's why they put Jehoiakim on the throne instead of Jehoiachin. That's why one one account in Kings says that Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he sat on the throne. But the account in Chronicles says he was 8 years old. Is that an error in the Bible? No. Is that simply somebody forgot to put a number 1 in the Hebrew text? No. Because numbers are spelled out in Hebrew. They don't even look close to the same. But no, it's because Josiah put his grandson on the throne when he was 8 years old. But after his death, the people of the land rejected that and put an usurper on the throne, his father. And so in a sense, as far as man was concerned, Jehoiachin became king at age 18. But as far as God and the king who had the authority to appoint his heir were concerned, he became king at age 8. So this happens time and time again. But in reality, as a result of this blessing, Jacob has 13 sons. 11 plus 2, Joseph's two sons makes 13. So, wait a minute, there's only 12 tribes of Israel. How is there 13? Jacob just said, these would be as my other sons. You've never heard it referred to as the 13 tribes of Israel, right? It's not. never has. Um, let's turn to the book of Exodus. Yes. I'm yes. Yeah. Because you take Joseph out and make him two. So you take one out and replace it with two. So in a sense, you've, you've, you've subtracted one and replace it with two. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to confuse anybody there. But turn, let's turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 32, verse 26. This is something that took place when Moses was up on the mountain receiving the law from God's hand, and the people of Israel were down in the camp. What happened when they were down in the camp and Moses was gone? Built that golden calf and and fell into idolatry. Genesis chapter 32, verse 26. Moses had come down. He saw the people were naked and dancing around and engaged in idolatry. Moses was angry. Look what he says in verse 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who out here is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. If you're on the Lord's side in this matter, gather yourselves to Me. And look what it said. All the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto Him. And then it goes on and says, And He said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about three thousand men." So the tribe of Levi stood by Moses and was used to execute God's judgment on the idol worshipers. Oh, that's so horrible, benevolent. God would cause His people to be killed. God's a jealous God and a holy God. and He told the people, if you turn from worshiping Me, you will die. It was God's mercy that no more than 3,000 were killed. But Levi stood with Moses and didn't participate in this idolatry. The tribe of Levi. Therefore, because of their obedience in this situation, we see later that they receive a special blessing when it comes to the land of Israel, OK Let me um, have some uh, help here. Jason, numbers chapter one, 49 through51. Ricky, numbers chapter three, 11 through 13. Tony, Deuteronomy 18:1 and two. When God originally brought the people out of Egypt, He told them that He was going to sanctify the firstborn of every man and every beast. And the firstborn of every beast would be sacrificed unto God. The firstborn of every man would be sanctified unto God and redeemed with the sacrifice. And the firstborn was to be given to God for God's service. But later, God changed this. And redeemed the firstborn with something else. And it's related to this event we just read about. Numbers 149 through 51. Okay, So what does God say here? That the tribe of Levi is not to be numbered with the other tribes. Because God had a special purpose for them. Their job would be to bear the tabernacle and to be servants of the Lord. To work for Him. So Levi is told not to be numbered. So once you put Levi in this special place of blessing... That's where you get the twelve sons or the twelve tribes of Israel. It's the twelve tribes plus the tribe of Levi, which is appointed for God's service. Numbers 3, 11 through 13.
1: And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, And I, behold, I have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel instead of all the firstborn women of the Majorists among the children of Israel. Therefore the Levites shall be mine, because all the firstborn
0: The last of the plagues that fell on Egypt was the death of the firstborn. And as a result of that, God hallowed the firstborn in the people of Israel. But as a result of Levi's obedience, the firstborn of the people of Israel was redeemed with the tribe of Levi. It would be Levi... The Levites, 20 years old and upward, that would minister to the Lord by caring for the things of the tabernacle. It would be the descendants of Aaron of the tribe of Levi that would be the priests that would minister before God in the nation of Israel. So, Levi was taken to be the Lord's for His service. And therefore, the other tribes would support the people of Levi and they would be able to eat of the offerings and they would have special... Cities appointed for them, but they would not have an allotment of land given to them when they came into the land of Canaan. So Levi was set aside for God and for God's service. Deuteronomy 18, 1 and 2. So the Levites would have no inheritance. When Joshua brought the people into the land, the land was divided and there was an allotment of land given to each of the twelve tribes. But Levi was not given an inheritance. He was the Lord's. And in fact, as you read through the rest of Deuteronomy and even at the end of Numbers and as you see what happened in the book of Joshua, you'll see that the inheritance of the Levites was not a piece of land like was given to each of the other tribes they were given 48 cities and the surrounding land. I forget how, how, how far it extended beyond the walls, but these were the possessions of the Levites. 48 cities, including what were called six cities of refuge. The cities of refuge were given if a man killed somebody accidentally or through self-defense, he was able to flee to one of these cities of refuge and didn't have to worry about the family members or the friends of the deceased executing vengeance. So he could flee to these cities of refuge for protection. This wasn't for the murderer. It was, before, it was for the one that defended himself or accidentally killed someone. And so these 48 cities would include the six cities of refuge. Levites, Levi's inheritance were cities not land. Their lot was the tabernacle or the temple service and the priesthood from the line of Aaron. So what you have is 12 tribes plus Levi. Levi was given a special place. That's where we get the 12 tribes of Israel. Even though Joseph was given two parts, and then that makes 13, Levi was considered something different. The priesthood, the Levites. And so that's what is meant by the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes plus the people of Levi, who were reserved unto God. But when you come to this passage in Revelation, you have an interesting situation. The twelve tribes of Israel you would expect to include the eleven sons of Jacob, plus Jacob's two grandsons, as being sealed, and then Levi wouldn't be listed. But that's not what you have here. In Revelation chapter 7, when these tribes are listed... What you have is Levi is included as one of the twelve tribes. Unlike in the Old Testament, after the matter that took place when Moses came down from the mountain, Joseph is mentioned. Joseph is listed. But yet, Joseph became Ephraim and Manasseh. So that's strange. And then you have two of the tribes... Not listed. If you're familiar with the different tribes, both Dan and Ephraim are not listed. Okay, so the twelve tribe makeup of Revelation chapter 7 is different from the Old Testament makeup. Here you have Levi included as one of the sealed tribes. You have Joseph listed. But then you have Dan and Ephraim one of the or Joseph, I would say, substituted. That's probably a better way to put it. Joseph is substituted, and then Dan and Ephraim are missing. Why is this? It says here in Revelation that all the tribes of the children of Israel are represented. Is the Bible contradicting itself? Is it an error here? I don't believe so. I believe when we study the Old Testament history, it becomes plain while this is the list we have here in Revelation chapter 7. So, I don't really want to get into that today. I'm not going to finish this chapter, obviously. But I want to show you why this list in Revelation 7 agrees with Old Testament history and gives us a picture at the end of time, or at the start of the tribulation, as to why the twelve tribes that do remain and are sealed... Are done so in a way, they're counted in a way that was different in the Old Testament. It involves the tribe of Dan and some of the things Dan was responsible for in the book of Judges. It involves the tribe of Ephraim. Who knows what was made the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel after the two were divided? Jerusalem was the capital of the kingdom under David and Solomon. And then the kingdom divided. What became the capital of the northern kingdom? Samaria. What was centered at Samaria down through the years of the uh, wicked kings of the north? Idolatry. In fact, it was Omri, the father of Ahab, that purchased the parcel of land and built Samaria. Samaria was located in the tribal allotment of Ephraim. Where is it that Jeroboam built the golden calves that became a sin to the northern tribes of Israel? He built them at Dan, the city of Dan, which was in the tribal allotment of Dan, which really wasn't what God gave them. They didn't like what God gave them, and they moved somewhere else. We'll see in the book of Judges. And then there was also a golden calf built at Bethel. Where was that? The tribal allotment of Ephraim so we see these two tribes are associated with the idolatry that came into the land okay so we're going to talk about that more next week let me go ahead and give you the end of the story I'll give you a spoiler here before I explain to you why when Revelation 7 says that all the tribes of Israel are represented in this ceiling it's speaking the truth it's speaking about all the tribes including the tribes of Dan and Ephraim. I believe that when Joseph is mentioned here, that the tribe of Dan and the tribe of Ephraim are hidden in Joseph. And there is complete representation of all of the tribes of Israel. They're hidden there because Joseph is another name for Ephraim. Go read the Prophets. And Dan would have been absorbed into Ephraim because of a faithful remnant, including Samson's parents and Samson that didn't migrate north to land that God did not give them. So all the tribes are represented here, but it's amazing how this listing is not just thrown out there, it encapsulates all of Old Testament history. And so we have an amazing confirmation that God's Word knows exactly what it's talking about. And there's a reason why They're listed this way. It wasn't some scribe. It wasn't John who was Jew couldn't remember the twelve tribes rightly. Come on. Every Jew knew that from a child. Every Jew knew what tribe he came from. You're going to tell me that John, an elder who had seen the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who had been a pastor in Ephesus, who had been instrumental in preserving the Word of God, didn't even know the twelve tribes from which he was descended? No. It's just like the genealogy in the book of Matthew, where we see the genealogy from, from uh, Jesus going back to Abraham. We see the names of certain kings left out in the genealogy. Why? Is it because Matthew was too stupid? Matthew was a tax collector and he was an accountant, it was too stupid to know some of the basic truths of his history? I know we live in a time here in America when average Americans have no clue who George Washington or Abraham Lincoln are. Look, in those days, Jewish people raised in Jewish homes were not as stupid as American people raised in American homes today. Okay, I don't think there's ever been people raised in the homes of their culture that are as stupid as American people are raised in American homes today. I just don't believe that. But anyway... Those kings were left out because they weren't of the bloodline. They were more the bloodline of the wicked king Ahab of the the northern kingdom than they were of David. And it took four generations for that bloodline to be established. But the the reigns were so short that it didn't affect the number of generations. So there's a reason there. And we'll be able to see this next week. I'm sorry I didn't get as far as I thought I would. This is good stuff. But I do have several other chances as we progress through the book. I think I might be able to... I'm pretty sure I can get number chapter 18, a big long chapter, out of the way in a single Sunday. But we'll stop here for today. Does anybody have any questions? Next week we'll talk about why these tribes are listed as they are, and then we're going to talk about the Gentile multitude. The fruit of the ministry of these witnesses. Guess what? These witnesses go forth and do ministry. And their fruit isn't buildings, it isn't kingdoms, it isn't hospitals, it isn't rest homes, it's people. It's not platforms. It's people, genuine converts willing to suffer and give their lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate fruit of any ministry. It's one that produces followers of Jesus Christ that will give their lives. How many of these TV ministries and all this garbage that purports itself as a ministry speaking for God today can say that or can lay claim to that type of fruit? Very few. Most of these TV ministries today, what they produce is gullible people who give their money for a time, but then fall away and are right back where they were in the beginning. True ministries produce people, not platforms. And so we as the church could learn a lot about what's stated here in Revelation 7. Jewish witnesses called to ministry, Gentile converts, the fruit of that ministry. So we need to stop thinking about our ministry in terms of 501c3 organizations, hospitals, elderly homes, big church buildings, prosperity, uh, uh, book deals, TV programs. No. The ultimate fruit of ministry is converts, followers of Christ who give their lives. That was the fruit of Jesus' ministry. Jesus never built a hospital. Jesus never stood behind a pulpit in a church building. Jesus never put together a committee. Jesus never voted on a board meeting. Jesus never built a nonprofit organization. Jesus gathered to himself 12 cussing sailors and he discipled them. And they became followers of Messiah who gave their lives, every one of them, except for perhaps John who did not die a martyr's death. And as a result of their preaching, the world was turned upside down. Even in the days of Paul, it was being said that the world had been turned upside down. That's the fruit of ministry. And we see that here. We fail. We're failing at that. God's work will be done with the church and His His last great revival, true ministry will take place. But we'll finish up next week. Any questions? So you'll need your outline next week as well and you can go ahead and study. Let me ask you to do this as we prepare for next week. Why don't you I want you to start and study a few stories in the book of Judges. This will help you understand where we're going. These are some interest it's almost like reading a mystery or an action-packed novel here. I want you to read this week in your quiet time. As you meet with the Lord. I want you to start at Judges chapter 17. And I want you to pay particular attention to 17 and 18. And if you want to go on and read to the end of the book. You'll see the kind of garbage that was going on in the days of the Judges. It says in those days there was no king in Israel. And every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And I want you to think about how closely the morality of the nation of Israel in the days of the Judges mirrors what we have today. In these days there is no God in America, and man does what is right in his own eyes. But Judges 16, I mean Judges 17 and 18, you'll find an interesting story that bears directly on the tribe of Dan and the tribe of Ephraim in terms of this listing in Revelation 7. Okay, I'll shut up.